0: means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at viennabeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at Polinamarket.com. Today, we feature Kitty, former White Sox slugger Ron Kittle.
0: So in 76, I made $72,400. Uh, so That's a lot my, of money back then. Well, I was working, I mean, I was only paid 8 bucks an hour, iron working, risking my life, but I worked double times all the weekends. And so it's kind of, that's 1976. In 1982, I get to the big leagues, I'm making $30,000. I took a cut and pay
1: uh, to go to the big leagues. He set a standard for White Sox rookies that stood for 31 years, most homers in a debut season. But Ron Kittle also established himself as a unique personality. Quirky to some, downright hilarious to others, but very popular to Sox fans who witnessed and remembered that great season. Kitty is still with the Sox organization, and his charities have produced millions of dollars. He's a native of Indiana and creates more than just laughs. So Ron Kittle, Tell me a story. I don't know. Well,
0: I, I, you know, <laughs> it's a nice intro. Thank you, George. I appreciate that, and we've been friends for quite a while. And uh, one of the stories that I always thought was kind of funny is once I got to the big leagues, the local bottling company uh, RC Cola approached me to uh, do a speaking event for their executives, and uh, so I, I agreed to it. It was the fee was twenty five hundred dollars. I'll never forget this. Uh, But I had this inside guilt as a kid. So I used to go to the local grocery stores and RC Cola had denominations of money underneath the the bottle tops. So as clever as I was, or uh, pre hoodlum, I don't know what you want to call it. uh, I would take, and I really, I I stole the bottle opener from the store or borrowed it. (laughs) And I would open up all the RC Cola bottles at the time. And through Gary in Northwest Indiana, RC was huge. You know, there was no Coca-Cola or Pepsi at the time. It was RC. So I would peel off probably 50 bottle caps uh, at a a couple different stores. I'd go in the woods with my pocket knife and I'd take the rubber seal off of it. And it would have 35 cents, 25 cents. uh, You know, I got a couple $50 ones over the years, $35. So I would use that for uh, entertainment money. And granted, I was a kid. So I would take that money and go to the third store and I'd buy a Zippo lighter with lighter fluid and I'd make torches. You know, I was just a little, uh, a little hoodlum, I guess you wanted to call them, but I didn't hurt anybody. So this company hired me and this story ate my crawl up for years. And I told that story to all the executives of RC Cola uh, in 1983. And uh, the guy handed me a check and I handed it back and I told the story. And I said, you know what? I said, uh, guilt is off my head right now. I don't, <laughs> you don't owe me nothing. I probably <laughs> took that money from you years ago. And it was about a month later, I got the nicest letter and a check for $5,000. And the guy says, you know, your honesty uh, is what makes you. He said, but I've got more mileage of telling that story. Than I did did paying you the twenty five hundred dollars. So isn't that amazing? And we're still friends.
1: Think about that for a minute, though, because all of us. I remember some bottle caps. When you took it off, you won a prize. You were very entrepreneurial then. I mean, if you added up how much money you made, I. It's thirty five bucks here, fifty bucks there, mostly mostly pennies. It added up. But, you know, I I was a kid and I
0: cut grass. I cut my yard at the house and I'm still my OCD and my ADHD all in one. My yard's perfect. And I did that when I was a young kid. Uh, I was 13 years old and I had $7,000 in the bank, but I really didn't know it was $7,000. I just kept making money, shoveling snow, cutting grass, cleaning gutters, doing this. And uh, I just kept throwing it in the bank, never even paid attention that there was a balance on it. So I bought all my... Schwinn bicycles my first Harley Davidson uh you know ping pong table I bought
1: the best of the best at the time with the money I made hell if I would have known you then we could have gone into business together yeah absolutely (laughs) you know for people who might ask who is Ron Kittle and let's face it Kitty there are young baseball fans who might never have heard of you describe yourself well you know uh
0: I, I'm a kid from Gary, Indiana, a uh, son of an iron worker. I was an iron worker before I was a baseball player. So my, I, I think I told the story or I sent you a note. My dad gave me a graduation present with a piece of paper says you're an apprentice iron worker. Uh, so most kids got cars or, you know, big cash, big party, whatever it is. So I, I got home at four o'clock in the morning. We were part, partying on Miller beach graduation with all the seniors. And I went to work at five o'clock. And I worked like 162 days in a row of overtime, ironworking. So that's 1976. I lost friends. I made money. Uh, and it was, you know, I bought my first car with my, my money. So in 76, I made $72,400. Uh, so That's a my, lot of money back then. Well, I was working. I mean, I was only paid eight bucks an hour, ironworking, risking my life. But I worked double times, all the weekends so it's kind of 1976 in 1982 i get to the big leagues i'm making thirty thousand dollars i took a cut and pay uh to go to the big leagues but it was a good choice uh but if you want to know what ron kittle is uh blatantly honest uh i very observant i pay attention things i would say i'm pretty much uh uh, kind uh, and i believe in doing things the
1: right way and i'm proud of the united states well, let me put it this way. If there was a deck of cards and it decided to add a fifth suit, I think it would be you. You were well-equipped with one-liners. Even in your first season, here, here's one of them. I think you said the your biggest thrill in the majors was your first paycheck, or when fans reacted to your long homers, you replied, they don't stand for singles. I like this thinking. So where did your sense of humor come from? You know, I, I, it wasn't from my dad because my dad uh... –
0: didn't say anything uh if you if called the house uh and my dad well during dinner time and my dad answered the phone uh you had no chance to ever talk so my story is i always thought my dad invented the first mobile phone because we're eating dinner one night and i got three sisters and two other brothers and the phone's ringing off the hook and my dad just got up and punched it off the wall and threw it out the window broke the glass and he goes, Hey, if you want to talk, go outside and talk. So my dad invented the first mobile phone. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, I think George, when people uh, ask questions or people who have a quick wit, they just pay attention to different things. Cause you know, I got friends who are very similar to me, but they don't see anything. Yeah, I mean, they look through tunnel vision down one pipe where I'm looking and I'm, panning uh, the whole area 180 degrees i'm not a big cigar guy but you know i don't relax too much you already know that so but i'll sit there with the guys have a cigar and a a cocktail and talk some baseball
1: i was meaning they're letting you personally into the country well they'll
0: let you in they may not let you out so we'll (laughs) we will see that part soon (laughs) so you you learn
1: how to do things like this and i just pay attention and i listen and it's good Listen, I remember we used to line up to interview you just to hear what kind of funny quote you'd have.
0: Hey, Ron, so you played for a few teams. Which was the best? The one that had their logo on my paycheck. (laughs) But Chicago White Sox, obviously. Okay. What's the best nickname someone ever gave you? Uh, Kitty is probably the most common, but I always joke around telling it. I thought my name was Hey Boy growing up because my dad kept on saying, Hey Boy, quit that. Hey Boy, quit that. So up until 13, it was just Hey Boy. There's always those people, and, and you know this in life, but most people who uh, need the most help uh, are the ones that are the funniest. And Robin Williams used to do that all the time. You know, he, he needed more personal help than he did anything else. Uh, I, I knew I was going to fail. Uh, you know, I broke my neck my first game, first at bat with the Dodgers. And jeez, oh, Pete's, I mean, uh, it can't get any worse than that. I'm sitting there with a steel halo in my head. Uh, the doctor tells me I'm never going to play again uh 10 minutes after surgery and my dad walks in and he goes, Boy, it's time for you to get up, or you're gonna live at home the rest of your life. I mean, I mean, I'm laying in the hospital and neurology, you know, uh, spinal fusion surgery in the late 70s was almost unheard of. I mean, that was just very rare. Uh and they take a piece of hip bone, pack it in your vertebrae. But I, I think if I would have died, my dad would have yelled at me and said, All right, now get up, walk home or something like that. So uh And all my friends knew exactly what my dad was. He
1: was, uh, he just said it as it is and only spoke when he wanted to. You know, what a lot of people don't know is how you got here or almost didn't because as a Dodgers farmhand, you nearly, your career nearly ended before it started. So explain what happened that involved your broken neck. So first of
0: all, I I went, I was ironworking and I was making uh, double times, 16 and a half uh, dollars an hour working 12, 14 hour days. And it was a Saturday and I was cleaning my boots off, uh, in my back porch of our house. And my dad saw it said Dodgers tryouts today. And I, he goes, all right, you're going to go to that. I go, no, dad, I'm working on money. You know, I wanted money. Uh, he goes, no, you go to that. He goes, I'll pay for, I'll give you the day's pay if you go to the trial camp. So I drove out there and, you know, and you got to do things in front of people the best you can all the time to show them, you know, some people get nervous. It didn't bother me. Uh, I went out there and I put on a show. Uh, eventually I signed with the Dodgers minor league contract. I go to spring training and I have an awesome spring training for the Dodgers. I get invited to big league camp. Uh, Mike Socia signs at the same time and we're roommates, uh, good friends. And we're sitting there catching on strings, you know, where they put strings in a strike zone. you probably never even seen that because the White Sox never used that much. But this guy was throwing, and, and I kept flipping, turning my head like it's going to hit the string and rotate the ball and hit me in the face or something. Uh, unbeknownst to me, the guy was Sandy Koufax. Swear to God. Koufax begins the Yankee half of the inning by fanning two with a curveball. Bobby Richardson is next. And he strikes out on a whistling fastball. Uh, really? And I, and I didn't even know it was Sandy Koufax oh because I, I knew, you know, growing up in Gary, Indiana, I watched the, the Cubs and the Sox. You know, you watch your local teams. And uh, everybody said, you know, you're catching the great Sandy Koufax. And I said, oh, yeah. You know, that's <laughs> with my little sarcastic grin. And uh, so we start our season in Clinton, Iowa. My first at bat, I hit a double off the top of the center field fence and Mike Soshi hits a bloop single. I score, I slide across the plate and a throw up the line from right field comes in and the catcher jumps for it, but he hits me underneath the chin uh, and I'm safe, but they wind up taking me out on the stretcher because I was completely paralyzed at the time. And, you know, and I didn't know nothing about it. So a couple of days later, I'm in the hospital and uh, everything hurt on me, but my neck, but you know, I. know nobody knew anything i mean there wasn't big mris there wasn't uh uh, cat scans or nothing like that i just hurt uh my arms so gradually i felt a little bit better i started playing again i played uh, pretty much half a season i did really good Uh, but when i got home in the off season my teeth were bleeding my ears were hurting uh everything hurt on me so uh went up to the doctor in chicago and they go you got three crushed vertebrae and a cracked spinal cord And that was on a Monday, Tuesday morning, I had surgery. And, uh, you know, to correct my thing, and my doctor told me my career is over with, Uh, you're done playing, son. Sorry to say that. So I was kind of a bitter young man.
1: Well, but your career wasn't over. So how did you wind up with the White Sox? So I wound up uh, getting better, working out.
0: uh, And I got introduced to uh, Dick Butkus, and he was with Nautilus at the time. Remember when he blew out his knee? Oh, well, sure. I knew the name. I didn't, you know, I didn't follow sports. I just played sports. Uh, so he, I was. I went in there about 185. He was working out with me. And I saw him a couple of years ago. And he goes, I absolutely remember that. He goes, because I saw you go from a skinny bean pole to some beast. And uh, it was kind of funny. So I got to 245. And uh, I went back iron working again, because I just, assume baseball was over with and some guy called me he goes hey you want to try play for a semi team?" and I said uh, when when are you playing he goes tomorrow night and I really I haven't touched the bat for six months didn't throw a ball didn't swing did nothing so I went out there long hair great suntan uh whiskers a beard so I played for a Chicago HEPA American Hellenic Educational Progressive Association it's a Greek organization so my first game, I, I put bad at George. The first pitch was at my head, and we were playing at Midlothian, right off 294, uh, out by Alsip and Cicero area. And, uh, you know, I'm going, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I thought my head was going to fall off when I whiplash myself. Two pitches later, I wound up hitting the ball over Howie Minus Field onto 294. And you can't make this stuff up, I'm just telling you. So I hit it over to Light Tower on the highway at 294 in front of a car. So needless to say, the car drives to 127th Street, comes down by the ballpark and says, who hit the ball on the highway? And I'm literally hiding, thinking I broke a windshield I got to pay money for, it, you know. And it was Bill Beck and Billy Pierce going to Coal City, Illinois for a speaking event. And uh, they asked me some questions. Uh, who hit the ball? I did. Uh, you ever play pro ball? I said, I did, but I got hurt. And I'm done. And uh, that was Tuesday. And Friday, I had a personal trial at Sox Park. And, uh, you know, there was history. I put on a, a, a show there that I don't think anybody can do any better. And that's how I signed with the White Sox.
1: You know, it's funny when you mentioned Bill Veck, because I always thought of Bill Vec as being a maverick, but a little bit of an oddball. Would you say you are, and perhaps still today, and I say this with all due respect, an oddball? Uh, You know, people
0: don't like to hear the truth, George. They don't like to hear the truth. Uh, I would say, I I would consider myself uh, unique, Uh, maybe a little bit of an oddball, but, you know, Bill Vec, I was his last person he signed. Uh, Then I wound up, matter of fact, I was a pallbearer at his funeral in Chicago. So, you know, and we just didn't have a great relationship. We just knew each other uh, and I respect mutual respect for him, but he's uh he was an entrepreneur, you know, he put the Ivy at Wrigley field. I mean, he, uh, he did some unique things in the game of baseball. I mean, if I would have stayed healthy, my career would have panned out completely different, but it is what it is and I accepted it and I put my effort forward to doing Different things, uh, my public speaking,
1: my uh, my charities, and other things that I like to do. Tell me a story I don't know is sponsored by the Polina Market, and with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949, and it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouth-watering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Plina Market is now serving sandwiches and also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers, Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online and you can have it shipped wherever you live. I've been shopping here for 37 years and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me A Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O F M A N, just one F on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and the free TuneIn app and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Ron Kittle on Tell Me A Story I Don't Know. 1983 is a long time ago, but not for those of us who remembered what a wonderful season it was for the White Sox and a kid named Ron Kittle. You hit a rookie record 35 home runs, some honest to goodness tape measure shots at the old Comiskey park. You made an all-star team. The game of course was played on the South side. You were named rookie of the year and the Sox made the playoffs. That is a dream season and sometimes a dream career for anyone. A- absolutely. I mean, uh, I didn't go there to
0: make an all star team. I went there to be the best player on the team.
1: Hey, way back, reach out. Whoa, rooftop shot for Kittle into this win on a cold night, and the game is tied.
0: You gotta be kidding. I knew there were very talented people on the team. My teammates, Greg Lezinski, Carlton Fisk, Harold Baines, you know, we had a group of great people on the team, but you know, you got to go in there with a good attitude that you can compete. You can uh, help the team win. there's not a day that went by that. I did not want to be the hero. And everybody knows in life and in, in sports, uh, you're going to fail more times than you succeed. But you got to go up there with that same attitude. But uh, it, it was a fun season. Roland Heeman, we had uh, Tony Larusa, Charlie Lau, Eddie Brinkman, Jimmy Leland. We had the best coaching staff in baseball. Uh, and I still believe to this day, it's Jerry Reinsdorf's favorite team because he he you know he was relatively young, and he just loved being with the guys he wanted to be one of the guys and to this day our
1: friendship is just like that he wants to be one of the guys what was it like um as a rookie to have your name announced at the all-star game which is the 50th anniversary of the game and it's played at comiskey park representing the chicago white Sox.
0: That's pretty incredible. Uh, it was overwhelming, honestly. If I had to do it over again, I probably wouldn't have tried to accommodate every media out uh, outlet there was because it literally wore me out going from one studio to the next, the TV stations to this location. Uh, it, it's it, it was a blast. Don't get me wrong, but you know, for a young kid, uh, that that's a lot of lot of effort. You know, I'm I'm talkative. I keep it going but when they announced my name it's pretty cool I mean Doug Desensi and George Brett were standing next to me and uh, they said they've never heard of an ovation like that in their entire life and they've been all stars before and but it, it's pretty special. Uh, my family was there to watch me play
1: and uh, you know and we won which is even better yet. You know I, I remember the season well covering the White Sox started off terribly 16 and 24, 49 and 49 and then suddenly the White Sox didn't lose i mean they won 99 games think of what the record was after that so it's a dream season but for you that dream was shattered by an orioles pitcher in the playoffs
0: yeah that's you know uh it, it was pretty cool going to the playoffs or giving a chance to play and i i had some success against the orioles and uh mike flanagan uh you know he's pitching one day and i think i was You know, I got quite a few hits against him during the year and I already hit a double in my previous bat. So we had a man at first and third situation. And here's a guy who could, you know, throw a dart at a thumbtack and hit it. And he broke my kneecap on a 3-0 pitch.
1: Kendall is hit by the pitch. Right on the knee. Whoop. Uh, Obviously flying didn't do this on purpose. La Russa and Cal Ripken Sr. Are among the principal peacemakers. The bullpens are emptying now.
0: Do I think is intentional? I really do. Why well, did you, you think know, it was intentional? Well, when you have success against a guy and you can't, you can't walk him, uh, you might as well get him out. I was a three zero pitch and he hit me. He only walked six guys all year. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, he wasn't going to walk four pitches that bad but it was a cutter at my knee and that's one of the locations that's a hitter that you can't get out of the way of you know out of your head you can duck or you know out of your feet you can jump you can't jump with your knees uh so it really took me out of the game i played one inning it swelled up like three times the size we wound up losing that game and uh, the next day i pulled into the ballpark park next to Roland heman and my knee was no exaggeration probably two and a half times the side size and it had a drain in it Uh, the the inflammation was draining out of it. And I was on crutches and Roland Heeman just started crying because I wasn't going to play the fourth game, you know, the decisive game. And I had success against storm Davis, but that's just, that's part of the game. But uh, unfortunately we just didn't get hot uh, to win some ball games and Baltimore won the world series.
1: You know, injuries kind of plagued you after that. I mean, you had a great rookie season, but you never played more than one hundred and forty-five games after that. And I wonder if there's some regrets because that happened.
0: Oh, oh, absolutely. You know, when you break your neck, uh, I used to switch hit George, and I couldn't. I stopped switch hitting because I. I never knew that you. I never knew that you switch hit. Yeah, in the minor leagues. Uh, but when I broke my neck, I can't turn to the right. So if I hit left-handed, I couldn't turn all the way. So I predominantly stayed right-handed. I mean, I still joke around left-handed. And obviously, I had more power lefty than I did righty. But it, it just got to the point where opening day of 84, I jumped into the patio area, you know, the picnic area left field that I dislocated my shoulder. So, I mean, I was just hampered with uh, bad injuries, you know, I don't know if me not playing in resting would have saved them. Uh, but, you know, when you're a young kid, you just want to play. And I still felt being injured and hurt, uh, I was still better than somebody else they could put out there and have a chance to, to do good. Uh, my home run numbers are up there at the top three in all the time baseball, minus the steroids. Like at 15-something, at, every home run, every 15-something at bats which is, that's pretty good, Mm -hmm. but you got to, but you got to stay healthy. And that's my regret. I, I, I kind of, I, it's not a pity party on me. I wish the people really would have seen what I could do uh, when I was healthy. That's, that's the part that probably
1: I wouldn't like to share. I want to move to 1986. It was a really tumultuous season on the South side for the White Sox. I remember it very well. Hawk Harrelson fired Tony LaRusso. I'm going to talk about him shortly. But he also treated you, which I think left you somewhat bitter. So tell me a story. I don't know what happened.
0: Well, you know, they weren't trying to fire Tony La Russa. They were fired, trying to get rid of uh, uh, David Duncan. And uh, Hawk wanted to bring in uh, Modrabowski Drabowski as his pitching coach. And, you know, and I, I voiced my opinions. Uh, I felt I was kind of turning into the veterans should say something. And, you know, it was kind of. Hawker saying, well, you ain't going to be here much longer either. So, I, I mean, it was kind of silly, but, uh, you know, you give a guy control. And, uh, you know, I used to joke to Jerry. I said, that's the – I said, "That's the two dumbest moves you ever made in your life, uh, letting Hawk get rid of Tony and bringing in Larry Himes as the general manager. So, and Jerry said, I agree with you. <laughs> you know, but I, I, I think I cared. I mean, some ball players go to the park every day. They don't give a flying doo-doo about anything. They just go play take their money, go home and do it again the next day. Uh, I just had feelings for stuff, but, uh, it Hawk was different. So we get traded to, uh, Oh, I made Hawk tell me if I was the guy getting traded and we were playing the Yankees at home, uh, before I got traded. And I was coming up late in the game. And I told Harold Baines, I said, if if I'm coming up late in the game, uh, to win a game for the White Sox, well, I just got traded for the Yankees and they're a game and a half up on the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, trust me, I ain't going to swing the bat because I'm on a new team tomorrow. You know, and I felt bad for that, but that's, that's how the game is played. I mean, so you're, already saying,
1: committed. So you're saying you already knew during the game that you'd been well, traded to the, the Yankees.
0: Me. Yes. I
1: made him tell me and he did. Uh, with and Wayne you still Collins. played. Uh, yeah, that was
0: kind of weird. Uh, it happened later on in my uh, career too, when I got traded to Baltimore, but, that game ended uh next day i drive up to milwaukee and uh i joined the new york yankees up there this is taken down the right field line barfield drifting over this one is carrying this one is off the wall and here comes warden to score here comes kittle on his way to third
1: he's gonna be waved down in by ferrara here he comes to the plate kittle's digging the throw up the line inside the park home run ferrara Wow. I just did not know that they would allow you to play, but you did. You know, there are a handful of people related to the White Sox today who were around when La Russa first managed here. And, of course, he's back. So tell me a story I don't know, what it was like to play under him then. And from your knowledge, is he still the same guy today? Here's a spring training story. I'm in Double A, and uh, Tony
0: is the AAA. Wait, no, he was a big league manager, and we were playing A. That's what it was. We were doing an intersquad squad game. They got snowed out in Minnesota, so they stayed back. Uh, I came up as a catcher, but I stopped catching due to Carlton Fisk signing a long-term contract. And so I was the first baseman next. Then they wanted to take three people. Then I wound up becoming a left fielder. That's how it all started. So Tony's at third base coaching and uh, first and third situation and Tony walks by me, you know, through the dugout. I'm in the batter's box getting warmed up. And he goes, uh, we're not going to steal on you. Well, I knew better than that. I mean, I I got, I know the game. So he had a double steal on the first pitch. And uh, I threw a line drive bullet to the second baseman who tagged Bobby Molinaro out at second. And at home place, the runner came into me and I tagged him out and I buried him. You know, I just, I wouldn't even let him get next to the home plate. I mean, I'm a big, strong kid. So then I took the ball and I rifled it or not rifled it, but I threw it pretty hard at Tony La Russa and I hit him in a chest. I go that, I go, thanks for lying to me. You know, that was my, really my first, uh, me dealing with him. And, but I had more respect for him because he's out there to win every single game, every inning. He's probably the most prepared manager in baseball. Uh, then. He's the most prepared manager in baseball right now, and I think uh, it's a good move on on him right now for the White Sox
1: to have him. He's very smart. So this is 1985, and you're playing with this really rambunctious kid, a loudmouth. His name is Ozzie Guillen, who, like yourself, was a Rookie of the Year. Tell me a story I don't know. Did you ever think then... He would wind up being the manager of the White Sox. Uh, no, I never
0: <laughs> thought he'd be a manager for the White Sox. But I'm gonna tell you what he could play, and uh, he he knew the game. He knew the hitters. Uh, he knew he was going to make mistakes and errors, but he he didn't care. He went out there to cover more ground than somebody else, and uh, it, he made it fun. There's
1: a chopper, tough play for Ozzie. their hands throws in time.
0: It over to first to retire a pretty good base runner as far as speed is concerned. In Brett Boone, I mean, when I was playing first base later on, uh, when he was playing shortstop, I mean, I would hear him whistle. I don't know if you ever heard him whistle. He pinches his two lower lips together and he whistles, and it's deafening. So one day Greg Hibbert's pitching and uh, he's at shortstop and he's whistling, and I'm you know first and third situation, and I think I go well maybe he sees something that I don't see. And he's whistling. So we go behind the mound at shortstop. and He goes, Ronnie, 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 section 131. Do you see the girl in the yellow, top? <laughs> you know, so, but that's that Aussie. <laughs> but it was, it was so good because it took Hibbard's mind off a situation to <laughs> relax. So Jeff Torberg runs out of the, the, the dugout what's going on. I just say secret play. You know, that's all I said. (laughs) But, you know, Ozzy, you know, he knew he was a skinny little Venezuelan kid. I mean, he knew he was going to go up there. Uh, He swung at every pitch. I mean, I saw him swing at a pitch. It was over the umpire's head. And, you know, you couldn't walk Ozzy. Pretty much you couldn't walk Harold either at the time. But he was was good for the team, Uh, you know, because you can only have so many people out there that just are robotic. And he's not robotic.
1: No, no, he's, he's not. And it, it reminds me of personalities. Ozzie Gian is an incredible personality. You're an incredible personality. And you had a teammate, Harold Baines, who never said a word.
0: Yeah. Harold <laughs> could probably, uh, been
1: vice president or president of the United States and he didn't know how to talk,
0: but, <laughs> you know, but I, I've known Harold since 1979. Uh, and I, I, I keep in touch with him a couple times a week. We reach out and talk and, uh, he, that was him. Uh, he was on a mission, and it is not that he didn't like to talk. I mean, I call he calls me now. We talk 20, 30 minutes, and I go, I go, Harold. I, I didn't talk to you for seven years for twenty minutes total, you know. <laughs> but he was there to do do his job. Uh, he, he's really well deserved on the Hall of Fame. I'm telling you, uh, a couple of injuries slowed him down a little bit. Strike here, he would have had three thousand hits easily. Uh, but uh, he's good people, and it's a good mixture. We had a good chemistry with all the players. When you
1: look back today, would you say that you had a good career? Would you say it was a satisfying career? Uh, With the injuries that I had, I had a very good career.
0: Uh, You know, I I remember I first got to the big leagues uh, in 82. I come up, and I sat down with our hitting coach at the time, Charlie Lau, And I was in the minor leagues, and I almost won the triple crown every single year. I mean, you can look at the stats. And uh, matter of fact, I did win the triple crown my double A year, and they took it away from me after they mailed me the trophy because Eddie Urak from the Red Sox got hurt, broke his jaw, and they kind of calculated his bats per hits, and he beat me by like one-tenth of a percentage point to win the triple. And I had to mail the damn trophy back. I should not have, but I did. So, you, you, I get, go ahead. so I get to the big leagues and I sit down with Charlie and uh, he said, he goes, I know you can hit. He goes, I know you can hit behind a runner, whatever it is. He goes, this is the big league son. He goes, we got nine players who can play. You want to drive a Cadillac or Mercedes. You just swing that bat as hard as you can and hit the ball as hard as you can and knock somebody off the mound. So, I mean, that that was a little different thinking for me. Cause I was never trying to be a home run hitter. I just hit the ball hard but you know, the higher level you go, the better the pitching is better. The defense. Uh, and so I just swung,
1: you know, you mentioned the name Charlie Lau and there are a lot of people today who probably never heard of Charlie Lau. I know that Jerry Reinsdorf went out and got him back in the day. He was considered a, not just a great hitting coach, but a hitting guru.
0: Well, you know, he, he had, uh, I mean, him and Harold, they had some great conversations together, like seven words each, uh, (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, he just paid attention to what's going on. You know, he worked with Reggie Jackson uh, with the Yankees. And Reggie had his banner years hitting over 285 home runs, RBIs. and But Reggie wanted to hit the big bombs or left field all or right field all the time. So he changed. He had George Brett. He put George Brett on the cover of a hitting magazine. I mean, Charlie put, you know, I had a lot of things going for me when I was healthy. He put me on the cover of his his art of hitting baseball book, or, uh, you know, I'm on the cover of Charlotte, I book. now that's pretty phenomenal. And, but he knew I was hurt and I knew I was only going to have so many swings in me for the rest of my life because all the injuries, uh, and I'm paying for it now, George, I got three fused, two herniated, one above one below two taken out of my back and my shoulders busted up, but I'm never going to, not do something. I want to keep on going and uh, show it, but Charlie was unique, but I got to tell you, story. we were in Kansas City, and Harold Baines and I, the first three games, we hit the ball as hard as we could, and we were both 0 for 11, and they had Willie Wilson in center field. Remember him? Oh, I sure I mean, do. This guy, could. he ran down balls from the left field line to the route, right field line. I mean, he took doubles and triples away from us, and we showed up with nothing. So the fourth day, it was hot. And I go out there with Charlie for early hitting. I asked for it. And he puts a ball on the ground by home plate. And I'm, he goes, get in your stance. And uh, I thought he was using that for uh, a strike zone location. And he goes, I want you to hit the ball. I said, when they throw it to me, he goes, no, hit it on the ground. So I took literally three swings with a bat on the ground, uh, like, like I was hitting a golf ball, and they all went up the middle. And I said, you know, and it was hot, you know, and he goes, you're done. He goes, that's your swing. And he goes, I didn't change you. He goes, I was just telling you, you can hit a ball at any location in the strike zone. Uh, I wound up getting a couple of hits during that ball game that day. And, uh, you know, so it, it was just those unique things that uh, Charlie used to come into you and talk about and uh, just try to build your confidence up.
1: Tell Me A Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouthwatering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill, then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry and look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available just about everywhere, from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, socks and cubs, museums and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at viennabeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has farm acres, chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at viennabeef.com. So one thing leads to another in your life, but you are still with the White Sox in a certain capacity. What are you doing with them today? You know, after I got out of the game of baseball, I managed in the
0: minor leagues a couple of years, uh, in independent ball, uh, won, won two championships, uh, but I didn't want to be a, ba- uh, a babysitter, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a mom or dad, or a bus driver. That kind of got old, but I did like it. Uh, I couldn't do it for a living. Then I did appearances for the White Sox, uh, do whatever they asked me to do. And all of a sudden, they approached me and asked me if I would be an ambassador uh, for the team. And I really didn't know what that meant. But I said, if you need me to do something, I'll do it. So I do their charity work. Uh, I make visitations to sick and dying people. Uh, and, that's, and I get complimented on that because I'll go to somebody who's going through chemo, stays for cancer, and visit them days before they die, just to, you know, bring some humor to them. Uh, You know, I don't go in there with pity. Uh, I really don't. I I think you know me well enough, but I go in there with a true heart. And, you know, my last one that I did a few years ago uh, before COVID all hit up, this this guy was, he was on his deathbed. And I went in there and he's taking a nap in his house and I knocked on the door and his wife (laughs) answers the door. She goes, can I help you? I go, yeah, I'm not here to repair the air conditioner. And she goes, finally, the one in the back room is out. And she had no idea who I was. So the son set this up. So I go in there and his dad's laying on the couch and I get up, I go, are you kidding me? I come over to visit you for a little while and you've got to take a nap. (laughs) And I mean, this guy literally sat up on the sofa. We talked for about an hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, He put his socks hat on. It looked like he pulled it out of a pop bottle and uh his 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 son and his two daughters were there and the mom finally found out who i was not the air conditioning guy but he wound up passing i think the next day or the day after mm-hmm. and they wrote me a, a letter and i still have it somewhere they said you you brought a smile to my dad that i haven't seen in the last six months you made him laugh which i've not seen in the last two years uh i can't i'm completely indebted to you. If you need
1: anything, uh, it's all mine. You know, and, and that's what it's all about. What an incredibly satisfying feeling that must be. I mean, it's unfortunate that the person passed away as quickly as possible, but that must've made you feel wonderful.
0: It, it does. And, and I've done it more than once to tell you the truth. And uh, it's, it's been, it's, it's, it's a tough job and Christine O'Reilly and Scott Ryford and the White Sox organization, uh, with the charities, you just can't send anybody in there. I mean, I'm your rock star when that comes to that. Uh, and, and I'll take bragging rights on that because I do the best I possibly can for that situation. And that leans back to all the charity work that I've done over 30 some years. We've raised over $3 million. I still do it today. Uh, it's very gratifying. Uh, I've had a, a baby baby. You know, when I first started getting involved in charity, I'll I'll bring this up quickly, is I was at the hospital, uh, University of Chicago Hospital, and I held a little baby in my arm, newborn, and the baby was very sick with cancer, and I wound up blowing bubbles on the little baby's stomach, and the the baby giggled, laughed, you know, had that little cute little smile and all that stuff, and she passed away in my arms. And I, I tell you what, you couldn't have felt any worse than I did at that particular time, because all I thought about, it should have been in their parents' arms. And the, both of the parents were crying on my shoulder. They said, that's the first time they saw their baby smile since they was born. And, you know, so then I got to throw the good on it saying, you know what, that was pretty cool. But I mean, it almost makes me tear up every time I think about it. But it's, it's part of life, uh, you know. You're, if you're dealt a bad card, you got to deal with it, but don't bring everybody else into it. Cause my dad passed away from cancer. I I've seen it up close and personal many times. And uh, you know, you got to be supportive.
1: You grew up in Indiana, though you currently reside in Mokina. So tell me a story. I don't know what was life back then for Ron Kittle and what shaped you into both the athlete and the individual you are today.
0: My One of my favorite stories, you know, and I, I was lucky enough to write a book. I hit six home runs in a game one time and uh, we were playing another following city, East Glen Park, and one of my former classmates was on the other team and he hit a ground ball to shortstop. I picked it up and I gave him like another two steps and I had a cannon for an arm and I rifled it over there and I handcuffed the first baseman, like about chest high. He just didn't turn the glove over, right? Nicked off his shoulder, his chin, went to the side fence. The runner never even went to second base. Uh, my dad that night did not let me eat dinner. He said, boy, he goes, I don't want none of that bullshit playing stuff like that. You get the ball, you get it out instantly. You know, and I mean, I had 13 RBs, I had six home runs, uh, and I didn't eat dinner. So my mom, literally at 10 o'clock at night, passed over two hot dogs wrapped with cheese and tortilla wrapped over the shower this is the best hot dogs I ever had in my entire life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you like to work witness two very important areas. We just mentioned one of them and I want to get back to the charities. Uh, but one of them is you're a craftsman who likes to build. So tell me a story I don't know about that.
0: I, I think it's I don't think it's bragging if you can do it. So it's fat. Uh, there's nothing I can't make. Uh, you, you show me something, uh, I can make it or I can make it better. So I've always enjoyed uh, dabbling things. I'm a junker. I go to the scrapyards, I find things, I create things. I just made umbrella stands and a flagpole stand out of old semi brake drums, which weigh about 100 pounds a piece. Uh, I, I make these baseball bat benches, but I do all kinds of art. Uh, they're a little expensive uh, because I buy American made goods, American made tools. I, I kind of like what I do and I sell them, I can make good money off of them, or I can make great money. And I get commissioned a lot through the white Sox to make uh, gifts for Jim Tomey, Paul Konorko, uh, who else? Big Poppy from the Boston, uh, Derek Jeter. So I get commissioned to make pieces for these guys. And, and they're very appreciative when it's handmade and it's half-crafted. Uh, I mean, I don't even think they know I'm a baseball player when they get these things. They just know Kitty made it and it looks pretty damn cool. You know, I, I don't know, but I've always taken care of my yard. Uh, I've been obsessed with it. I lived across from the baseball field. I cut the grass. I did. I, I made it immaculate so i care about how i do things and i care about things that i make so i mean i got projects i got ronkittle.com is my webpage. if people were interested in seeing some of the things i make they can go on there Uh, i make custom orders i make humidors uh i've had a couple what three cigar socials for jerry reinsdorf uh if you want there's a guy there's a
1: guy there's a guy who loves his cigars
0: well you know what when you want jerry to come to your event uh It's not going to be a vegan event. (laughs) He's not going to come. And as my job as an ambassador, and it's, and and I, you know, like I said, everybody's got a boss. I mean, I'm 63 years old. I don't need a boss. I got one in my house and I do everything she asked me to do. But when I come up (laughs) with an idea, I throw, I go right to Jerry. You know, they said, that's not protocol. I said, you know what? Protocol doesn't get nothing done when it's got to take three weeks and go through proper channels. I just do it. I instinctively do it. And I do it over 100% perfect all the time. So I've been hosting golf tournaments, cigar events, motorcycle rides, everything that I've ever run has been absolutely perfect. And I mean, perfect that people beg for me to do them again. That's how nice it is.
1: You know, you mentioned your charity work, which you're very proud of. And you've been doing that for a long time.
0: It's uh, It started, uh, and it goes back into my early days, George, in 1979. I just signed with the White Sox out of a trial camp in, in 78 uh, at Midlothian. So I go to Knoxville, and I had ironworker money. So I always had money in my pocket, money in the bank. And so I got a, a, an apartment, and it had a wooden old wooden garage door that kind of you twisted it and you lifted it up. And I, there's a kid down the street. uh, And he he looked like he was in on fire or something like this. So I kind of asked him, you know, I'm the guy that will tell you if you got a booger in your nose or you need your roots dyed. So I took to this kid and I said, Hey, what happened to you? And he he was kind of more scared. I said, come on, tell me what happened. And he said, well, my parents tried to kill me because I got cancer. And this is 1979. That's pretty heavy for a young kid, 20 some odd years old as me. And uh, I took him to get a haircut and I took him to Buddy's barbecue in Knoxville area. And we ate every day. This guy would eat like four pounds of beans and, uh, you know, a beef sandwich or whatever it is, a barbecue pork sandwich and cornbread. So I got him a job as a clubhouse kid for the socks. And he'd come in and he'd. Willie Thompson was our club at the time. Would teach him how to, uh, you know, shine shoes, throw the towels in there so he can do the laundry. I mean, nothing much, but the kid had a life. He, he got something to do. And uh, it, like I said, it, it happened for about two months. Then finally we went on a long road trip. Two weeks, we were on a bus and driving all over the place. And I come back and I opened my garage door and the kid hung himself in my garage. And he wrote a note. He said... Uh, Mr. Ron, I wish you were my dad or my big brother. Thank you for taking care of me. And his parents are alcoholics. And they tried to kill him again. Uh, You know, and that's a tough thing. And, you know, I didn't talk about it for almost 15 years. And I finally broke out. And People said, I don't know. I don't, I never knew that. I said, well, I don't, you don't tell stories like that. You know, especially when you got young kids, you don't want to tell them about the heartaches, but uh, that's the day I said, one day when I make some money, uh, I'm going to start doing something for charity to help people out. And that's what it all started out. And it took me years later to you know, try to create a foundation, and it did. And 30 years later, we've done pretty good for ourselves. OCD. I know what it means. What does it mean to you? Well, it's CDO. It's OCD in the right order. Okay. Uh, you know, there's not one day in my whole life... Or I didn't walk into the batter's box and take my cleats and take the gravel or the dirt and make it level like it was freshly raked. Not one day. I don't care. It was joking. It had to be perfect. And my yard, I expect everything to be done. Uh, am I clean? Oh, you can probably drop food on any room in my house, including the bathroom, and eat it. That's how clean I am about this. And I think that was probably and there's some players out there are complete slobs and it used to just make me sick to my stomach. Uh, You know, I room with a couple of them and you know, I would clean. And so the OCD would just be, I just paid attention to the things that it needed to be right. Uh, I, I, you know, I, like I said, I wanted to be the hero every night, but I knew I was going to be the goat way more than anything else out there. I just wanted it to be right. And I, I I consider that OCD as just, having a plan of everything being as perfect as you possibly can.
1: I end all of my interviews the same way. If not for baseball, what would you have been?
0: I'd have been an iron worker, a very successful iron worker, and I would have had a lot of money in the bank. And, uh, but my personality would still be absolutely the same, and I, I would still be loving
1: life. Thank you, Ron Kittle, for telling me a story I don't know. Thanks, George. Always welcome. My thanks to NBC Sports, WLS Radio, the Yankees Television Network, and NBC Sports Chicago for those wonderful highlights. Thanks, as always, to T.J. Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing, T.T. Schinken for her artistic touch, and Ken Schreiner for always being there. And, of course, to our presenting sponsors, the Polina Market. Find them at Polinamarket.com and the Vienna Beef Company in business since 1893. You can find them at ViennaBeef.com. Join me next time for another edition of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.